Um, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do the mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and appointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. It is, uh, it is very good for me to be here. Really, really good. It's, it's a, a privilege and i um, been looking forward to, to coming and being with you all this afternoon. Um, I got to bring my family this time, which I, I only brought part of the family last time. Um, brought more of them today, um, including a, a very little one who's, who's back there with, uh, with my wife. Um, just in terms of a little update for you guys, in terms of where we're at and what's going on in our lives, we are um, acclimating to life with a, with a, a, a one-month-old now in our, in our family, and that's been going very well. She's been sleeping pretty well recently, which means that we've been sleeping pretty well, although my wife just looked at me like, like maybe maybe I misspoke. Maybe we haven't been sleeping all that well. It varies from night to night. I like to focus on the positive, though. So some nights are pretty good. Um, we are acclimating to life there. We're also in the midst of transitioning um, uh, through um, the changes that are taking place with regard to our relationship to our present church, Maranatha Grace, and with regard to New Hope. Um, by the way. If any of you are visiting here today, you have no idea who I am, or if I haven't met you, my name is Rob, by the way. Um, I'm, in a, in a matter of weeks, going to be coming on and, and, and have the privilege of serving New Hope as, as one of your pastors. Um, the past couple of weeks have been uh, a matter of, of really trying to um, serve well back at Maranatha, wrap things up, um, delegate some responsibilities, meet with and pray with our brothers and sisters there in preparation for our departure to come here. It's been a really encouraging time, but it's also been um, a difficult time. And as Jenny was praying just earlier, she, she prayed, you know, she said, we, are, we come to you, Jesus, because we are weak. And I think that that's something that, that I've been, I'm, been feeling uh, uh, very, very strongly recently. Um, our own weakness and our need for the Spirit to empower us and to help us through this transition period. Um, very excited, but there's also, there, there's fear mixed in with that excitement. There's, there's anxiety even with all of the, the anticipation. So, so we, need, we, we need the Lord's uh, strength. We need um, the, the Spirit's guidance, and we thank you guys for, for praying for us, and we're really looking forward to, to being here full time, getting to know you as a church and you brothers and sisters better um, in the future. This morning, I was at uh, Maranatha Grace, our, 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 our church down in, in Jersey, and I, I preached what will be my last message to that church as, as a pastor there. 
And, um, and the Lord um, gave us a really good time, a really good time of worshiping him together and looking to the future, looking to the future. And as I look to the future, I don't know what the future holds, but I look to the future and I see all of you. And, um, and I praise God for that. I thank the Lord for that. Um, I want to invite you to pray with me before we jump into God's word. Lord, you have, you've been very, very good to us. You have proven to us again and again that you love us. You've displayed that by sending your son to die in our place. And Lord, you, not only do you show us your love, you tell us again and again that you love us. You remind us in your word. Your spirit who abides in us, your children, reminds us that you are our Abba Father. We thank you for that reality. We ask that you'd help us to worship you as your people here this morning. We ask that you would take your word and and plant it deep in us. We ask, Lord, that you'd use it to transform us in our minds and in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would feed us with your holy word. And we, we promise, Lord, to give you the glory for anything that takes place that's good in us because we know that it comes from you. Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears ready to hear um, the words of your Son and we pray that you'd give us faith to respond, Lord, with trust, with deep-rooted belief in Jesus Christ and everything that he tells us. All his promises. We ask that in his name. Amen. So over the uh, past few months, if you've been here in these, in these gatherings, you've spent some time looking at Jesus Christ in uh, a variety of different settings, in the book of Mark, in the book of Matthew, in the book of John, um, as different preachers have come here and, and, and shared. The, the goal has been to see Christ and how he operates. That is to see his character and also see his work what he says and what he does in these different settings, to get a glimpse of who Jesus is and and meditate on that and be helped, be encouraged, be be changed. Um, You have, in past weeks, you've seen Jesus deal um, deal with people and show mercy to them regardless of their social status, regardless of how important or powerful they are. You've seen him deal with problems as urgent as life threatening disease on one hand, and something as mundane as a party where the wine runs out on the other hand. You, you've, seen him, you've seen him rescue his disciples from a storm that threatened to take their lives. And you've also seen, most recently, you've seen Jesus send his disciples out on a seemingly impossible mission and, and promise that he'll go with them wherever they go, every step of the way. So Jesus, in all of these different settings and in all of these different scenes, he displays his authority. He displays his power. He shows us that he's got power and authority over nature, over Satan and evil. He shows that he has power and authority over disease and death itself. For everyone present in all of those accounts, everyone who saw Jesus in each of those settings was inspired to awe. They were amazed. Jesus, again and again, in all these different situations, is awe-inspiring. He displays his deity and his power and his strength, and, and, and people are consistently amazed by that. Sometimes, sometimes the amazement looks like deep gratitude and faith. Sometimes the response of amazement looks more like confusion. Some people are just really confused by him. Sometimes people are afraid of him. Sometimes people are angry at him in some of these cases. But there's always amazement again and again. So in in Mark 6, the passage that that Julia just read to us, what we see there is Jesus going home. We see him going back to where he grew up. And, And things are really different at home. This is a strikingly unique passage up to this point in the book of Mark. Stunningly different. Have you ever, have any of you ever gone back to the place where you grew up to visit after a long time away? Have you ever gone back to your hometown? And 
And, and if you did, did you feel that sense of nostalgia when you arrived? That rush of memories. Maybe things looked really different. Maybe some things just looked the same. But all those places and, and the people you saw, they all had special significance for you. You were, you were brought back to all those experiences. And, and I think that all that must have been true for Jesus Christ as well as he returned home. But, but what he found when he got back home in Nazareth wasn't just memories. He, in fact, met with ridicule. And he met with suspicion. It's, it's really a stunning account. And as, as we immerse ourselves in it today, I, I want us to think about three things, three truths that I, I think we, we see here that will help us to understand Jesus and know him better and will also help us to understand our mission as his people, as a community of his people, his disciples. So the three things I want us to see in, the, in, this, in this account are, uh, is, is one, Jesus knows rejection. Jesus knows rejection. Uh, the second thing is that Jesus' followers know rejection. And the third thing is that Jesus' followers know Jesus. They know Jesus. So Jesus knows rejection. The scene here in Mark 6, <clears throat> it's in a town called Nazareth. Population was probably around 200 to, to maybe 1,600 people live there. Small town. So small, in fact, so unimportant that this town doesn't get mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It does get a mention in, in John chapter 1, but it's not a very flattering mention. You may remember this. There's a man there by the name of Nathaniel. He hears that Jesus Christ is from this little town. And do you know what he says? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything good come out of that place? And Jesus, when he meets Nathaniel, it's, it's interesting. He really likes Nathaniel's honesty. It's like he knew himself that his hometown was nothing to, to speak of. So let's contextualize this a little bit for ourselves, just where we are and where we live and think about this. Um, if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember looking at Mark chapter 5. Uh, uh, Juan Kwok, Pastor Juan, who's, who's uh, my uh, the guy that I pastor with in, in, uh, at Maranatha Grace, he was here and he, uh, he shared an account from Mark chapter 5 about how Jesus Christ revives, he brings back from the dead the daughter of this man named Jairus, who was uh, a religious official. And then, and then you also, in that same scene, Jesus heals a bleeding woman as well. You may remember that. Well, think of it this way. If Jairus, he's this powerful synagogue leader, he's a man of importance, think of him as, as maybe from, he's from the Upper West Side maybe. Or, or maybe he's from Scarsdale. He had, he had status. He had wealth. He had power. The bleeding woman, on the other hand, maybe she's from like East New York, Brooklyn, or something like that, or maybe she's from the South Bronx. Her, her background spoke of powerlessness. Her background spoke of poverty. She was penniless. So they're kind of on those opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and if that helps, then, then think about Jesus. Where is he from? He's from somewhere up in rural New York somewhere, Warren County or some other backwater, unheard-of place. If you're from a backwater, unheard-of place, I mean, no offense to you. But it's a place that, in the larger culture, wasn't really thought of as significant. It didn't really matter to anyone else unless you were from there. So Jesus goes back to this town with his disciples, and although it's a homecoming for him, and it's kind of a big deal for him, Jesus does what he normally does. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he begins to teach. He begins to teach people. He, be, he keeps announcing that message of the kingdom, that God's kingdom was arriving in him. He comes and he does it. He's calling people to repent and believe the gospel. Mark tells us that's his kind of repeat message. He just keeps giving. Repent and believe the gospel. And, and the response he gets there in Nazareth, it, it starts out with astonishment, and it ends with hostility and rejection. Look at, look at verse 2 of Mark or Mark, Mark 6, sorry. He says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
They took offense at Jesus. Literally, they were scandalized by him. They stumbled over him. That's kind of what it means. In one sense, they're saying, who does this guy think he is? And and Jesus understands their response. Because look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Maybe it was a popular saying. A prophet gets respect everywhere else until he comes back home. And he's around the people we grew up around. His relatives and his own household, they don't think he's so important. We might put it this way, familiarity breeds contempt. And to them, Jesus was familiar. They had seen him growing up along with his brothers and his sisters. And, and remember, this is a small town. This is the kind of place where everyone knows everyone else. There's no secrets in places like this. Private lives are often public knowledge. It's not the kind of place where people remain distant or anonymous, like some of the neighborhoods where we live. Maybe in some of the neighborhoods we live, it's hard to find out what's going on in your neighbor's lives. It's hard to even be involved in their lives, and maybe we're resistant to even letting them get involved in ours. We tend to live distant from one another. Not the case in a place like this. They say, they ask this question, isn't this the son of Mary? And those those words, we might just kind of breeze past them. They seem insignificant to us, but they're not. They're not at all. They should stop us because... They're packed with all kinds of insinuation. You see, these folks in Nazareth would have remembered all the sketchy circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy and the birth of her son. These people would have heard the rumors about her. Some of them may have even spread the rumors about her. And realize this, and this is how we can, we can kind of tell this, this was a deeply patriarchal society. So normally, if you're going to trace someone's lineage, you don't trace it through their mother, trace it through their father. It would have been much more customary. In fact, it would have been 100% expected for them to say, isn't this the son of Joseph? That's how you identified people in this time and in this culture, not by their mom, but by their dad and his line. But they don't say, isn't this the son of Joseph? In fact, they may very well have been saying, or at least implying, isn't this the, the bastard son of Mary? Isn't this the, the son who, I mean, who, who really is it? We don't even know who his father is, do we? Stop to think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ submitted himself not only to the confines of a family and all that that implies, right? Family life in a small home with the sibling conflict and the, and the parental unfairness and the familial drama, and all that goes on. And not only that, but he, he, he did it within the confines of this small town where people were likely to traffic in, in, in rumors and, and gossip and judgments against each other. Jesus lived in the midst of all that. He humbled himself and dwelt among that. And his neighbors, who, who at least from our perspective, should have, should have humbled. They should have been humbled and honored to know that God would send his son to live like that, to dwell among them in Nazareth of all places. But instead, his lowliness, it causes them to just lose respect for him. Who do you think he is? And, and now look at this. Jesus, Jesus had been rejected before, hadn't he? This isn't the first time that people are offended by him and are put off by him. Even if you read through the first parts of the book of Mark, you'll see again and again and again, many different people were offended by Jesus. Many people reject him in different ways. Some even conspire to kill him. Some say, he's sent by Satan. He's under the power of demons. This guy's evil. He's even accused of that. In fact, some people think that when when these folks in Nazareth said, where does he get this wisdom that he's sharing with? Where does he get the power to do these things? Some people think that he's actually, they're actually implying not just where does he get it from, they're implying he comes from somewhere other than God. They're blaspheming him. Where does this power come from? Surely it's not from God. But this scene in Nazareth, it's, it's somehow, in some ways, it's different from all those other rejections. And the reason I say that is this, because Jesus looks at them, and it says in verse 6, he marveled at their unbelief. 
Isn't that interesting? He marveled at their unbelief. Again and again, we see people marveling at Jesus. But here, he's the one who's doing the marveling. The people of Nazareth were astonished by him and his teaching. He was astonished by them and their skepticism and, and, and their hostility. It was over the top. It was, it was unique. To make things stranger, in, in verse 5, Mark tells us this. Look at verse 5. It says, He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What's going on here? Why couldn't he do any mighty work? Is Jesus just so flustered that he can't heal someone? It's just like the, the rejection is just too much for him. He can't take it, and he just, he just kind of loses it. He can't even do what he normally does. Cast out demons, heal. Is he, is he like some kind of superhero who's kind of all of a sudden lost his powers? It, it's not the case at all, right? This isn't Superman who faces kryptonite. Like the kryptonite of rejection. It's just too much. I can't perform. We need to see this. Look, these, these words show us something really vital, really important about the way that is that, that God works. They show us something that we need to see about how God works. Again and again, throughout the Gospels, and in Mark in particular, we see Jesus healing people, right? He does it again and again. He does it again and again in response to faith. There's this leper in Mark 1. There's this paralyzed man in Mark 4. There's this bleeding woman in Mark 5. There's Jairus, the the synagogue official we just talked about in Mark 5 as well. There are these crowds that come to him seeking healing. It's always the same pattern. There's faith. Jesus acknowledges the faith even when it's weak, even when it's just like smoldering, it's just like burgeoning, small faith. But they're coming to him for help, out of that faith, crying out to him. In some cases saying, I believe in you, but I really need you to help me with my unbelief. And how does he respond? Healing, giving, restoring, saving. And then on the other hand, though, we've got people throughout the Gospels who, who are deeply offended by Jesus. And, and they're settled in their opposition to him. They refuse to believe in him. They refuse to trust him. In some cases, Jesus, how does he respond? In some cases, he rebukes them. In many other cases, you know what he does? He leaves them alone. And he goes on. Jesus leaves them and moves on. And, and that in and of itself may seem offensive to us, but, but I want us to think about it this way. And this is why I'm taking the time to just talk about this right now. I want us to see that Jesus Christ is not just a guy who heals. He's not just a healer. He's not just a man with the ability to cure diseases and to cast out demons. Healing is actually found in Jesus. Wholeness is found in in him, in relationship with him. It's not just a thing that he gives out. It's something that you find when you come into relationship, into intimate fellowship with him. You know, in the book of John, Jesus doesn't say, "Um, I can give you life. He says, I am the life. So that means that to come into relationship with him, to be united to him by believing in him, that makes life ours. But to reject Jesus, on the other hand, what does that mean? It means to reject life. See, Jesus doesn't travel around handing out, just handing out good things. He is the good thing that we need. And we only find wholeness by coming and and believing and, and resting on him. What he found in Nazareth wasn't belief, it wasn't faith. And so there wasn't healing. There, wasn't. there was some, because some apparently did believe and did trust in him, but by and large, there was a rejection of him. And in rejecting him, what did they reject? They rejected healing. They rejected wholeness. They rejected life. I 
Let, let's try to apply this to, to our lives just, just a little bit before we move on. Um, if it's by believing in Jesus that, that, that we begin to experience who he is and, and, and what he says he can do for us, then, then that means it's of the utmost importance that we, um, that we come to Jesus not just to get certain things, but we come to know him. That we come to get him. That we come to know and fellowship and have intimate relationship with him. If you're, um, if you're wrestling with the claims of Christianity, and you're here this morning um, or this afternoon, I, and maybe there are things about Jesus that are, things that are, you look at, things that offend you about him. You know, things that you look at him, just the same way that the Nazarenes looked at him, they were offended by the fact that he was just so normal and he came from a messed up family and he lived up the street from them. That's what offended them. Other people in the Gospels, they get offended by other stuff. I want, is there something about what Jesus says or who he is that offends you, that's a stumbling block to you, that keeps you from coming to him and trusting in him? So what, what is it? Is, is it what he says about himself, the claims he makes? Is it the things he says about you? The things that he tells you about yourself or the way you need to live? I want, I want us to, to think about this for a moment. Tim Keller, the pastor at a Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he has said this. He has said, there may be things about Jesus that disturb you, but Jesus has been offensive to people at all times and in all cultures. And I think he's right. Jesus has always offended people. Not that he was set on going out and just hurting people's feelings. That wasn't his intention at all. But he's always caused offense of different sorts. So if you're a 21st century Northeastern American, what are, what are people in our culture likely to find offensive about Jesus? Think about that for a second. What are people likely to find offensive about Jesus where we're at and where we live? Maybe it's his instructions for living, like the way he tells us we need to live. That doesn't go down so easy in our culture, does it? His instructions, his commands, they seem restrictive to us. They, they seem narrow, don't they? They seem antiquated in our culture. Or maybe what folks might find offensive about Jesus in our culture is just all the supernatural stuff he talks about, like otherworldly elements of what he says. Like he, he claims that he healed, and the Bible claims that he had power to stop storms, and he even had the power to raise up from the dead. And, and that all sounds like myth to us, doesn't it? In our 21st century ears, that sounds like superstition. It sounds antiquated. It's what simpletons believe, not educated folks. Maybe, maybe it's his exclusivity. I think in, in my experiences, this, is, this has been really, really is offensive. It's what stumbled me for so much of my life. I couldn't get around this. It, 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 it scandalized me in the, in the sense of when Jesus claims that no one can come to God except through him, that no one can be saved or know God except through him. These are all common objections. Maybe you can think of other ones, but I want you to think about this. It's something that Keller was kind of alluding to. In other parts of the world, those objections don't really carry much weight. They do for us because where we're at and where we live. But in other parts of the world, in other times in history, Jesus' claims about exclusivity, they didn't really, they wouldn't strike anyone as particularly bad. It's just fine. But you know what might offend some people in some parts of the world and in some cultures? The fact that Jesus says that he will save as an act of free grace, undeserved grace. I mean, receiving something without paying for it, that, that, that sounds like theft. That's dishonorable. That's wrong in some cultures. In some places, when Jesus says to forgive your enemies, to love them, to our 21st century Western ears, that may sound like a virtue. In some parts of the world, it doesn't at all, right? Forgive your enemies. What? Am I a coward that I would forgive my enemies? It's offensive. Deeply so. My point is this. My point is simply this. In one way or another, Jesus' words and his actions are going to be scandalous to people, to us and to others all over the place, no matter what their backgrounds, their, their, their sensibilities are. Jesus, in one sense, is an equal opportunity offender. Because, because what he says is counterintuitive, and it's, and it's countercultural. 
regardless of who you are or where you're from. No one is naturally predisposed to agree with Jesus on everything. But, I, but, but look, if Jesus really is God, if he really is who he claims to be, then shouldn't we expect him to offend us once in a while? Shouldn't we expect certain things that he says to kind of hit us as just counterintuitive and hard to take? He is, after all, God, right? And if he agreed with us in everything, and if everything he said just rang perfectly true to us, that should make us pause. We should expect God to not see eye to eye with us, shouldn't we? If he is, after all, God. In fact, if you're searching for a God who agrees with you in all things, whose positions and commands always seem right and fair and good to you, really I'd say you're searching for a God who's made in your own image. The God of the Bible says, no, we were made in his image. We don't get to choose a custom designer savior. That's not what Jesus is. We can't say, and I would encourage you, we can't say, look, I'll, I'll believe in a God who fits all of my criteria for what a God should look like. Oh, God says, no. That's, Jesus says, that's not the way I operate. This is who I am. This is truth. If you come to me and you trust me and you have fellowship with me by faith, you will experience the goodness. You will experience wholeness and life. And you will see that I am God. If you acknowledge me as Lord, So Jesus, he knew rejection. He knew it again and again throughout his life because his message was always countercultural. His message was always counterintuitive. It always challenged people in different ways. But but what we see in this passage is, is not just that Jesus knew rejection. It's that Jesus' followers know rejection too. Jesus' followers know rejection. You know, in these in these verses, verse seven down through verse eleven. Jesus calls his 12 apostles and he begins to send them out two by two and he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. It says he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He commands, he he takes his 12 apostles aside, he commissions them and he sends them out. You know what, this, this is kind of a precursor to what you saw if you were here last Sunday, right? Where Jesus commissions and sends off his apostles after his resurrection to make disciples of the whole world. This is just a precursor to that. He's sending them out two by two. And built into this commission are these instructions for what to do when you get rejected. Here's what to do, guys, when you, when you meet with the Nazarene treatment, the Nazareth treatment, where no one wants to listen to you and the doors are slammed in your face and you're ridiculed and you're disrespected. Jesus says in verse 11, here's what you do. Shake the dust off your sandals. Hmm. Shake the dust off your sandals. This is, by the way, this is something that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament. Jews would do this when they returned from Gentile lands. Like, you, you travel far away from the Holy Land. When you come back, what do you do? You shake the dust off your sandals. It's like kind of cleaning your feet before you walk into your house, right? Or taking off your shoes before you walk into your house. It, it, it's not like the, this doesn't mean go to hell. I don't care about you. It's not that. It's not dusting off the, the dust off your shoes like that. What it does mean, though, is it's, it, it, it sends this message. You're responsible for what I've told you. I have shared the message of the gospel with you. My conscience is clean. I'm moving on. It, it's meant as an encouragement to repentance. It's meant as an encouragement to believe the gospel. Look, Jesus prepares his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples for rejection because he knows that they're going to face it. And many of us are just like, Duh, of course they're going to face it. I've experienced rejection just earlier. That, you know, I, yeah, I experience it all the time, you might be thinking. Because, because as they teach and they serve in his name, as they do what he sent them out to do, they're going to meet with the same kind of response that he met with. They're going to face the same kind of opposition that he faced at some point. Some are going to believe, some are going to love, some are going to reject and hate. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
Jesus says in John 15. New Testament, when we read about these apostles as they go on their missions throughout the New Testament, it's filled with stories of rejection. There are stories of faith and stories of rejection, both sides of it. John, the apostle who was there on this very day, says in 1 John 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It doesn't mean that everyone in the world is going to hate you, obviously, but it means that people of all kinds. The point is we can't strip Jesus of his offensiveness. And, and I know I'm, I'm kind of speaking very matter-of-factly of this, like, hey, we're going to face offense if we're following Jesus. It's going to happen. The reality is that this scares some of us a lot. The reality is that this scares me a lot. Perhaps you've experienced rejection because of Christ on some level, and it hurt you deeply. Maybe it scarred you. Maybe it was rejection. This, maybe it was just loss of respect. Someone lost respect for you because of your relationship to Christ, because of what you believe. Maybe there's a, there's a stigma attached to your faith in Jesus. And, and so someone whose respect you wanted or used to have has rejected you. Maybe it's rejection in the form of losing a relationship. Your relationships have become awkward and strained and perhaps in some cases just, just exploded completely. People have distanced themselves from you when you've sought to draw near to them with the gospel. Talk to them about this Jesus. Maybe, maybe the rejection was even from a, a brother or sister who you just tried to help. You wanted to help with the words of Jesus. You wanted to be Christ's ambassador and help. And maybe you didn't do a great job of it. Or maybe you did the best you could, but it didn't go well. And you were pushed away. And, and the natural response from that is to recoil from that sort of rejection. And, and many of us, it causes deep fear. In fact, some of us are, are worried that we might face more rejection in the future. As maybe as we feel that Christianity is becoming more stigmatized, maybe less acceptable than it was in the past. Some of us are worried, and, and, and that might be a legitimate concern. But, but for others of us, maybe we're a little different. We don't worry about getting rejected so much. In fact, we don't care. We don't care about hurting people's feelings. You don't like me? That's okay. I know people like that in my life. I know it can be, it can, there's a liability involved in that. There can be like a thoughtlessness and a carelessness and a kind of like, who cares kind of attitude there. But I tend to envy people like that, personally. Only because I feel like, man, there's just like this inner strength. Like, they don't care what people think. What must it feel like to go through life not caring what people think of you? I have no idea what that feels like. And some of you do. But there's a problem there, too, isn't there? A big problem there. Maybe you offend too much. Maybe the offenses that you've given others aren't necessarily the offense of Christ as much as it's the offense of your own personality. Your own obnoxiousness, maybe. Look, the fact is that we fail in this often on one end or the other. If you're a follower of Jesus and you manage to never offend anyone, then that's something to really think about. Because, because maybe it means that you've been living hypocritically. Maybe it means that you've been living fearfully. I, I don't want to project that on you, but it's something to think about. Is it possible that you've been hiding Christ and his message and that's why you get along swimmingly with everyone? I, I At a grad school, uh, the first job I got um, once I finished was... Um, was at a publishing house, and I worked there for a couple of years, and I was working hard there, and I wanted to really um, make a good impression, and I was, I was pretty young at the time, and I, I, I felt kind of in over my head. Um, I felt like I had a lot to learn, and um, I just wanted to work hard, be liked, and do a good job, and so I tried to do all those things, and um, I got along really well with everyone, but after over a year there, um, I started realizing that while um, I had a pretty good standing in the, in the eyes of all my coworkers and my superiors, I realized that all they knew about me was that I was a pretty nice guy who seemed to work hard. And their knowledge of me didn't lead to them knowing anything about Jesus. And I realized that it was because of my fear of rejection. So what I had done is that I had... I had I'd been a nice guy. <laughs> but I'd also, 
in some subtle, strategic ways, maintain the distance, maintain some space. Because I felt that if these people really start to get to know who I am and what I believe and what I'm about and what my life is based on, they're not going to like me anymore. And I realized I couldn't live that way. I realized that I was squandering the, the, the opportunity and the, the gift that God had given me to steward in this job. I was squandering the time and the life that he had given me. And it brought me to a place of really needing to repent, really needing to turn and, and, and ask him. It wasn't just a matter of willpower. It was asking him for the, for the confidence in Christ to be able to represent him. Not just maintain a distance. Notice when Jesus sends out his disciples, notice what he says. He says, go into these people's houses. Stay in their houses. And stay in that same house until it's time to leave that town. He's, he's telling them to, to kind of get up close with other people. Not, to, not, not, you know, book a hotel in the area. Go into the town every once in a while. Like, preach on the street. Hand out some tracts or something. I don't know. And then, and then kind of go back to the hotel. Regroup. No, he's saying, like, live with these folks. Let them get to know you. Because if they get to know you, they're going to get to know Jesus. No one's going to, I had to realize that maybe some, no one's going to be saved by my niceness, right? No one's going to be saved by your niceness. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. So if our niceness allows for opportunity for us to display and communicate and shed light on that gospel, then awesome. But if not, it's not enough. And on the other hand, some of us, man, like I said before, some of us were too quick to offend. We constantly willing to draw the line, constantly willing to get into arguments about faith, for instance. Maybe that's something that we need to pray and repent of. We've all failed at it. We've all failed many times, and whether it's to hide from, from rejection or to, to kind of bumble right into it. So, so I th- what I'd like us to end with today, and as we look at this third point quickly, is, is to think about how can we do this well? How can we actually represent Christ well and do so in a way that we're not so fearful of the rejection that we really risk every time we represent Christ? We can't avoid the rejection if we're going to be faithful. How do we face it? How do we embrace it and not fear it? That's the third and final point here. Jesus' followers know Jesus. And what I want us to see here as we close out is simply this, that the more intimately we know Jesus, the less we're going to fear rejection. And the more accurately we're going to be able to represent him. And by know Jesus here, I'm not just talking about just knowing about Jesus. The word know throughout the scriptures often talks of like intimate relationship. It speaks of intimate communion and fellowship. The more we experience Jesus, so to speak, and relationship with him, the less we're going to fear the rejection that's bound to come at one point or another. Look, so Jesus sends out his disciples, right? Imagine how scared they were. And then he tells them after he sends them out, he says, oh, and leave your stuff, by the way. Don't, don't take anything. Just go. Two by two. By sending out his apostles in that way, he's telling them, look, there's, you have nothing to depend on but me. The only one you can depend on is your God. God gives you the authority. He gives you the mission. And you're going to, be ha- you're going to have to depend wholly on him. There's no safety net. And, and this is true for us, isn't it? It's true for Christ's church throughout. It's true for us. As we saw, as we saw last week in Matthew 28, Jesus made it super explicit there. What does he say when he sends out his disciples? He said, behold, I will be with you. Always, to the end of the world, I'm going to be in this with you. But we still fear sometimes, and it it paralyzes us. It traps us. God understands that. He knows that. In fact, in Proverbs 29, 25, he says, The fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man, it lays a trap for you, he says. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. You see, the, the Proverbs talk about the fear of man, that fear of rejection, that fear of disapproval. It's, it's, it's taking people and putting them in the place of God and saying, if this person rejects me, I've lost it all. It traps us. 
And it traps us in this way. It traps us so that we cannot serve and love the people that God calls us to if we're afraid of their rejection, can we? How can you love and serve people well when you're so fearful that they're going to turn their backs on you? You can't. So the Proverbs tell us, don't make people your God. Make God your God. Fear him. Trust him. Paul knew this, the Apostle Paul. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Hear that? He knew God. He knew the fear of the Lord. It doesn't just mean that he was afraid of God. It means that he knew him. He knew the power of God. He intimately knew what it meant to experience the power of God. And as a result, he can persuade other people and get rejected and get stoned and get left for dead and still keep persuading others. Isn't that what we want? Is that the kind of lives we want to live? I believe that knowing Jesus is the key. It was the key for these disciples, and it's the key for us. Because the more that we know Jesus, the more that we're going to come to appreciate the acceptance that we have with him. He has accepted us. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That means rejection with Jesus is an impossibility. So as we hear him, as we come to his word and we hear him, we come to his word not just to like download information about him. We pray to him not to just download information about Jesus, but we come to him to experience and hear his voice telling us, I love you. I'll never reject you. My acceptance is more valuable than the acceptance of anyone in the world. And my presence will never leave you. So we start to appreciate that and live in the light of it more the more we get to know him. We start to value the acceptance of other people less. We're freed up. We can actually seek their good rather than seek their approval. Seek their good rather than their approval. And also what happens is we know God more and more, we know Christ more and more, is we start to, to realize that even in, in when we do experience rejection, when we do start to experience rejection, we can actually relate to Jesus in it. Like, I know Jesus better because I've been rejected. You see how that works? It's what, it's what Paul says in Philippians. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Share in his rejection. We start to realize the more we know Jesus and the more we get rejected by others that rejection doesn't kill us. The only rejection that can kill us and destroy us is rejection from God. And the fact is that we do not stand in danger of being rejected by God if our faith is in Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ wasn't just rejected in Nazareth when he went home to visit his old buddies. He was rejected by God himself on the cross. The Father himself was willing to turn away, and Jesus Christ himself was willing to suffer the abandonment of his Father on the cross for a time in love, in perfect wisdom, so that, so that we would never be rejected, so that we would never have to fear that his ultimate rejection not not at nazareth capernaum and all those towns his ultimate rejection at calvary makes it okay for us to be rejected it's the key to facing rejection i think is knowing jesus you know the the disciples they spent so much time with jesus before they went out didn't they They had been living with him for a long time before Jesus sends them out in Mark 6. And after they had gone out for a while, what did they do? They came back to Jesus at the end. And they they told him stories about what they had experienced. They shared their experiences with him, and he listened to them. And he comforted them, and he encouraged them. You see, time with Jesus for these disciples, time with Jesus, it prepared them to go out, and it also meant like recuperation when they came back. And the same goes for us. We need, we need to be knowing Jesus more in those private moments with him, communing with him in, in mundane ways, and really in, in simple ways, in his word and in prayer, in meditation and asking him to fill us by his spirit so that we would know him personally. That spirit who cries out, Abba, Father, who reminds us, you are God's child, you are God's child. We need to seek that. And sometimes I think we're under the impression, I have felt this way, and maybe you have as well, that in those moments where you're facing 
Am I going to get rejected here? If I say something about Jesus here, if I try to help this person by pointing them to the cross, am I going to face rejection here? I sometimes think, God is there watching me like, is he going to do it? Didn't think so. You know, like he's, he's judging me. He's looking at me like, is he going to just, you know, like, like man up and do it this time? Is he just going to like, can he at least just like mention my name? At least say you're going to pray for the person, you know? At least like offer something. And I feel like if I do that, then I'm kind of up, approval. God approves of me. I've shared the gospel. Or, or, or I've prayed with this person. Or I've talked to them about Christ. God approves of me. No, that's not. It's so wrong. What does, what does God should tell us? God says, Jesus Christ tells us, I am with you always. He is present with us in those moments. Not with a clipboard ready to make a note on how we do. He's there empowering us by his spirit with us by his spirit, sympathizing with us because he too faced the temptation to run away from rejection and never succumb to it. And this happens. I think we know Jesus. It's not just in those private moments alone. It's not just prayer. It's in community. It's together. Why did Jesus send these guys out two by two? And why did he convene them all back together to like debrief and talk again and pray again when they got back? Why? Because he knew they need each other. The, the apostles, it says, they returned to Jesus later on and told him all that they had done and taught. <laughs> That's what happened when they came back. They were happy. They're telling Jesus all that they... And Jesus says to them in verse 31, he says, come away by your, ourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Does that sound like a God who's standing there looking down at us, judging whether we do well or not? Come with me. Let's rest a while. And they had, and they, 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 and they went away by themselves. We need to pray for each other. New Hope, this is, this is something that, that we need. We, in our care groups, in larger gatherings, in our families, in our relationships, we need to share our fears and our struggles in community. And I'm convinced that it's, it's one of the reasons that gatherings even like this are important. Because we sing and we pray and we share and we remind each other of who Jesus is. He knew rejection. And because he did, we are too going to know rejection. But more importantly, we know him. We know him. I invite you to pray with me. Father, thank you that your word fills us with every reason to not fear, and, what, and yet we confess that we're prone to it. Lord, we thank you that you have accepted us in Christ. Every other little rejection pales in comparison, Lord. So fill us with boldness, fill us with courage, not in ourselves but in you. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. And help us to be ambassadors of Christ that represent him well and find strength in him. Minister to us in our fears, Lord. Comfort us in our fears. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.